Faith, hope, and love. A trio of qualities was made memorable by the Spirit of God through the Apostle Paul in that great chapter on love in 1 Corinthians 13, which concludes with these words, And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Well, Peter also writes about this famous trio in 1 Peter chapter 1. He talks about faith, hope, and love in the first few verses of the chapter, and then he adds a fourth one, namely joy, which is, as you know, one of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, according to Galatians chapter 5. And Peter indicates that when faith, hope, and love are operating properly, one of the results is joy. An exuberant, robust joy that wells up in the hearts of God's people. Do you have this joy? Have you lost your joy or some part of it? If so, then I would encourage you to ask the Lord to help you to listen and to learn from this portion of God's Word today. You recall that this book is written by Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion, that is, believers in Jesus Christ, who were scattered outside of the land of Israel. And these Christians, the book makes clear, are both Jews and Gentiles who live in northern Asia Minor, four Roman provinces of that part of the world that today we call Turkey. And they were facing severe trials. That's referred to several times. You see it most clearly in verses 6 and 7, where Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so, facing severe trials, Peter writes this book for a number of reasons, but largely to encourage them. And what he's telling them is that they need to dwell upon Christ and upon their heavenly inheritance in order that their hearts may be filled with joy in spite of and in the midst of the trials which they are enduring. And so, in doing that, he gives us these three famous elements found in 1 Corinthians 13, Faith and love and hope, and that will produce joy. And let's see how that works. We begin with faith, and our text today is verses 8 and 9. And in this text, we find four aspects of genuine faith, saving faith. Verse 8, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And what do we learn here about faith? (coughs) First, we note the object of our faith. We talk about faith, and many people talk about faith and divorce it from any particular object or content. Just believe anything, something. Doesn't matter what, just believe something hard enough and you'll, you'll do fine. But that's never what the Bible teaches us. Our faith must always have an object. There must always be content. There is something to be believed. We're not just believing any old thing. If we believe the wrong thing, we're in trouble. But if we believe what is true, especially about God, about God's Word, about Jesus Christ, then our faith is genuine and will will take us safely home to heaven. And so the object of our faith is God, or the Word of God, but isn't it interesting that both of those concepts are combined together in the person of Christ? And that's really what he's talking about in verse 8 when he says, Whom, having not seen, you love. Who is he talking about? Jesus Christ, back to verse 7, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love. And he's obviously talking about faith. They haven't seen him, but they still believe in him. 
In fact, they believe in him so much that they love him, which we'll get to in a moment. But right now, we realize that their faith centers on Jesus Christ, who is God, God the Son, the eternal God, the immortal God, the invisible God, the omnipresent God. He is God, and one of the primary ways that he is presented to us in the Bible is as the Word of God. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And so when we're talking about faith in God, we're talking about faith in the Word of God, in some mysterious way, those two are combined together when we talk about faith in Jesus Christ. That is faith in God. That is faith in the Word of God. And we are believing in Him, according to verse 8. Whom having not seen, you love, though now you do not see Him, yet believing. Yet believing. And literally in the Greek, it's followed, that word believing is followed by the preposition ace, in, in or into. Believing in, believing into Jesus Christ. That talks about trust. That talks about dependence. That talks about placing ourselves completely upon Him, completely in Him. We are, as it were, drawn into Jesus Christ by faith. And so the object of our faith is Christ. But secondly, we note what I would call the spirituality of our faith. Whom having not seen, you love and you believe in. Whom having not seen. And Peter points to a very obvious fact, an indisputable fact of history, namely that these believers had never seen Christ physically upon the earth. Peter had, but those that he is writing to had not. That may be why he shifts from the first person plural pronoun in verse 3 to the third person plural pronoun as we get to our text. You see in verse 3 he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us, including Peter, us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. <clears throat> but now as we get to our text today, he has shifted to that third person. I'm talking to you and about you, because this fact particularly applies to them and does not apply to Peter, whom having not seen, you love. Peter had seen him, but they had not. They had neither seen Christ in the past, nor do they see Christ now in the present, though they are believing in Christ. And that, of course, applies to us as well. We who are believers in Jesus Christ here today have not seen Christ with our physical eyes. We have not actually heard his voice with our physical ears. We are in the same category as those that Peter is writing to, whom having not seen. Is that a disadvantage? Not having seen Christ as Peter and the other apostles and, and uh, thousands of others actually in that time had done. Well, the Bible indicates that this is not a disadvantage. Remember what Jesus said to Thomas after the resurrection when Thomas did not appear with the disciples the first time that Christ appeared to them and exclaimed that he would never believe unless he had the opportunity of feeling with his own fingers the wounds in Christ's body, and when he was given that opportunity, he fell down before Christ and said to him, My Lord and my God, and Jesus said in John twenty twenty nine, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. The implication is even more greatly blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So not seeing Christ with the physical eyes is no disadvantage to our faith. And by this we are reminded once again that faith does not depend upon 
visual perceptions. Faith does not depend upon visual perceptions. It depends upon hearing the word of God and believing it, but not upon seeing any particular thing. Nor does faith produce visual representations. There's some people that think that the highest degree of faith is to have a vision, to see Christ, to report that I saw Christ beside my bed last night. I had a dream. I had a vision. I saw Christ. And that means that my faith is greater than yours. My faith has now taken a step forward. But according to what Peter says, that is not so. The faith that lays hold of Christ without seeing him is apparently a stronger faith than the faith that depends upon something visual. And the faith that lays hold on Christ does not have to produce anything visual in order to assure itself that it is real faith. In fact, faith may be weakened by visual stimuli. That's what Christ seems to be implying to Thomas, Thomas, because you have seen me, you believe, but more blessed are those who, having not seen, yet believe. So faith may be weakened by visual stimuli. Not only is it not necessary that we have statues and icons and pictures in order to see Christ, to worship Christ, to know about Christ, to believe in Christ, as some people are convinced that we do. But not only do we not need those things, but the indication of Scripture is is that they may actually be a barrier to the strongest and truest kind of faith. Take that to heart, those of you who deal with children. It's almost impossible to get children's curriculum, Bible, Bible material to teach our children that does not have pictures of Christ. But I am still insistent that that is not what God intended. That is not necessary. That is not helpful. Oh, but you see, but children are so visual and they have to see in order to learn. Listen, we're talking about spiritual perception. We're talking about God-given faith. We're talking about something that is entirely different from the normal human experience. We're talking about wanting our children to come to a strong, saving faith in Jesus Christ, and you don't need to see Him. You don't need a picture of Him in order to believe in Him, whom, having not seen, you love. Faith rests entirely upon God's Word, the written Word of God, the proclaimed Word of God. Faith rests entirely upon God's Word, God's written Word, God's proclaimed Word, when the proclamation is true to the Bible. And so we see, number one, the object of our faith is Christ Jesus. Number two, the spirituality of our faith. It is unseen. Number three, the continuation of your faith. Whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing. Though now you do not see him, yet believing. That's a present participle. That means it's it's an ongoing matter. It's present. Yet believing. Whom, having not seen, nevertheless, you continue to believe in, is the idea. In other words, genuine faith is not a once-for-all activity of the past. But if it is genuine faith, it certainly has a beginning point. There is a time when you first believed. But the point is that if it's genuine faith, it continues to believe. The question is not so much have you believed, but are you believing? Now, obviously, if you have believed with genuine saving faith, then you are believing. But you see, this is one of the evidences of genuine faith to distinguish it from spurious faith. There is a kind of faith that seems to believe for a while and then stops believing. 
But when it stops believing, it proves that it is not true faith. But true faith continues to believe, continues to believe. Peter, you're writing to people who are severely tried and persecuted, and some of them have lost their homes, and some of them are hungry and are, are in desperate conditions. Ah, that's all true. But nevertheless, they love the Lord Jesus Christ and they are believing in Him. And they are continuing to believe in Him, though they've never seen Him. They have genuine faith. And the perseverance, the continuation of their faith is the evidence that it is genuine. And finally, we see the goal of your faith. What does this faith produce? What does this faith obtain? What does it acquire? Well, there are two things suggested to us in our text. The first one implied and the second one stated. What is the goal of our faith? Well, the implied goal in verse 8 is a full view of Christ. Whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, but you understand what the implication is though now you do not see him of course later you will it's not you do not see him and never will see him but though now in the present upon this earth during your earthly sojourn you do not see him but of course the time is coming when you will see him when you're Desire to see him face to face will be fully realized. And that will be a glorious day, and that is the goal of your faith, a full view of Jesus Christ. But the second goal of your faith is the one that is stated in verse 9. Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The salvation of your souls. And Peter is evidently using the word soul the way the Jews used it the way it's used in the Hebrew Old Testament, which does not mean just the spiritual part of us, but it's actually a word that means the whole man, body and soul. That's the way he used it, for example, in chapter 3, verse 20. And we can clearly see it there. He's talking about the days of Noah. And notice what he says in 1 Peter 3:20, Who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. Well, now, if Peter meant soul the way we normally mean it, just the spiritual part of man, then he would be indicating that they had all drowned. Only their souls were saved. Their bodies perished in the flood. But, of course, that's not what he's saying. In the case of Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives, they were the only ones who were saved both body and soul, And Peter says eight souls were saved. He's using that word soul the way that Jews normally used it. And so taking that back now to verse 9, we realize that when he's talking about the salvation of your souls, he's talking about full, final, and complete salvation in the day of Christ's return and our resurrection to glory. The salvation of your souls. In other words, the salvation of all of you. The salvation of your spirit, which is saved now, if you're saved, and will realize its salvation at your death when your spirit goes to be with the Lord and your body goes in the grave. But when the Lord returns, then the body is raised, glorified, like Christ's glorified body. And glorified body and glorified spirit are joined together and shall be forever with the Lord, forever, ever, ever. Amen. In Christ-like perfection and glory without end. And that's the end. That's the goal of your faith. That's what you're pressing toward. That's what your faith is obtaining. That's what you will receive someday. Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation, the full, complete, and final salvation of your entire being, body, soul, and spirit. So that's what we learn about faith. What do we learn about love? Well, Peter has said, Whom having not seen, you love. 
And so the first thing that we see is the reality of love. Whom having not seen you love, this is a statement of fact. It is assumed for all believers. All believers in Christ love Christ. The reality of your love. Peter doesn't say, Whom having not seen, you ought to love. Whom having not seen, I hope you love. Whom having not seen, you need to learn to love. But he says, Whom having not seen, you love. No question about it in Peter's mind. No possibility that that could not be true. As far as Peter is concerned, it's a statement of fact. And this is one of the results of our faith. Genuine faith issues forth in love for Jesus Christ. If you believe in Christ, you love Christ. If you believe much, you love much. If you believe little, you love little. But there's no such thing as not loving him at all. If you believe in him, you love him. Which, of course, is the fulfillment of the great commandment. What is the great commandment? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. How can we do that? As fallen sons of Adam, we cannot. How can we do that? As redeemed sons of Christ, we can do that. At least we can begin to do that. And our love, which is also growing and progressive like our faith, will one day issue forth in perfect love. It's not there yet, but it's moving in that direction. And we love him now. And we are learning to love him more. And we will love him perfectly someday. The reality of our love. But then secondly, we learn some things about the nature of this love. And what do we learn about that? Well, number one, that it is volitional. First and foremost, it is volitional love. And we know that because Peter used the word agape, agapao. One of the words for love that is used in the New Testament for a a love of the will, a love of the volition, as opposed to some other Greek words that might emphasize more the aspect of emotion and so forth. Volitional love. Now that doesn't mean that this love does not have any other content or element to it. There will be a development of desire and delight that go along with this, but it is first and foremost a love of the will. In other words, our love to Christ is a matter of choosing to love Him, choosing to serve Him, Choosing to follow Him, choosing to obey Him, that's the primary element of this love. That's why Jesus could say to His disciples, love your enemies. And He wasn't telling us to have necessarily a gushy emotional feeling toward our enemies. I don't know that it would necessarily be wrong if that developed, but that's not what God is requiring us to do. He tells us what he wants us to do. He wants us to do good to those who despitefully use us and persecute us. Those who do ill toward us, we do good to them in return. We make a decision, a choice that in the place of the evil that we have received and in place of the revenge that we feel like getting, instead we are determined that we are going to do good for those who have done ill toward us. We are going to wish them well. We are going to wish them God's blessing. We're going to wish them to have a good relationship with God which we would assume they don't at this particular time, but it is our desire that they truly will. But in the meantime, we're going to help them. If your enemy's thirsty, give him a drink. If he's hungry, give him food. Help him out. You say, I don't feel like it. What's that got to do with it? This love is not primarily emotional. It's primarily volitional. You act 
you obey, you do what you know you ought to do. And that is the beginning of our love toward Christ. It will grow and develop beyond that, but it must begin there. It must begin there or there's nothing to build upon. And so we can say the nature of our love is, first of all, volitional. Secondly, it is practical. What does that mean? The nature of our love is keeping Christ's commandments. Jesus said that, didn't he? If you love me, what? Keep my commandments. That's the proof of your love. That's the evidence of your love. In fact, that is the essence of your love. You hear his will expressed. You know what he wants of you. And your love says, I will do it. And the more your love grows, the more your desire to do that will grow. But you can begin by saying, I will do it because I know I ought. And that's the beginning of our love for Christ. It's very practical. Thirdly, it is continual. This, like the other verb that we looked at, is in the present tense. It is continued regular activity. Whom having not seen, you continue to love. You love and continue to love, just like you believe in and continue to believe in. That doesn't mean that our love will be without variation. It will. It doesn't mean that our love will never have any ups and downs and never cold spots, (coughs) as opposed to warm spots, all of that will inevitably be true in the life of all of God's children, but it will never be completely cut off. It will never be interrupted not to continue on. A love like that is not the love of a believer. But if you believe in Christ, then you love Christ, whom having not seen, you love and continue to love. And the fourth thing we learn about the nature of this love is it is it is reassuring, a reassuring love. Because when we desire to obey Christ out of love, then we know that our faith is genuine. And when we know that we love him, we are assured thereby of his love for us. Because the Bible tells us we love him because what? He first loved us. So if we love him, it's because he first loved us. Loving Christ doesn't come naturally. Fallen Adam doesn't naturally love Christ. Fallen Adam can't love the Lord our God with all our hearts and souls and mind and strength. That's the evidence of our sinful nature. We can't love God as we ought Martin Luther understand that, understood that, and he said, love God, I hate him. He was more honest than most people. Hardly anybody today would admit that. Hardly anybody today would even understand that. We have such a mushy, gushy, namby-pamby, object-less, content-less kind of idea of love. If anyone has any sort of warm, fuzzy feeling toward God at all, they think they love God. With no interest or desire of obeying his word at all. But he knows I love him, even though I'm living in sin. He knows I love him. No, he doesn't. Because if you're living in sin and not willing to confess your sin and forsake your sin, if you're not willing to to do his will, if you're not desiring to please him, if you're not willing to obey his commandments, you don't love him. Be honest about it. Understand the reality of it. Quit deceiving yourself. Quit playing games. Be honest, you don't love him unless you have a desire to please him. But if you have a desire to please him, that, my friends, is a God-given desire. That, my friends, is one of the evidences of his love for you. Faith, love, and then hope. And faith and love produce hope. Peter mentions that specifically in verse 3, and then that concept undergirds the rest of this paragraph, including our text in verses 8 and 9. But in verse 3 he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. According to his abundant mercy has begotten us again. We have been born again. Unto what? Well, born again unto eternal life. Born again that we may never die. Born again so that we don't need to go to hell. All those things are true. But born again unto a living hope. Those who are born again have a living, a lively hope. And what is that? Well, this hope is based upon the assurance of divine promises. Back to verse 8, or verse 9 rather, receiving the end of your faith. Receiving the end of your faith. That word receiving means as something due or deserved, as wages. You say, that's a strange concept. How can you use that in terms of salvation when we know that salvation is all by grace? It's unmerited favor. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not earned. It's not deserved. So how can Peter choose a word to use that contains the idea of receiving or obtaining something that is due, something that is deserved? Well, it is like this. Yes, salvation is undeserved. It's by grace. It's unmerited favor. But salvation, once laid hold upon by faith, then has promises of the whole package to come. If you have Christ, then you have promises which are so certain it could be said that they are due to you because they are due to you in Christ. This is part of what Christ purchased for you. No, you don't deserve any of it. But if you have Christ, then you have everything that Christ purchased on behalf of his people. And therefore, the part that you haven't received yet is your due. It's coming to you as surely as what you've already received has already been obtained. And so this hope is based upon the assurance of divine promises. We can have great hopes about the future, the great hopes about what is coming, because having now Christ, having now saving faith, having now a God-imparted love, having now what Paul calls elsewhere the earnest of the Spirit, the down payment, the evidence that we have Spirit-wrought salvation within us because of what has already been done, that indicates that it is a work of the Spirit. And therefore, having the earnest of the Spirit now, we have the promise of the fullness of everything that is involved with that. And it's, it's as certain to us now as if we already had it. And so hope is based upon the assurance of divine promises. Hope is based upon the present appropriation of future salvation. That's really what hope is. The present appropriation of future salvation. Again, that word receiving is in the present. It's another present participle. This whole text is loaded with present participles. And it's another present participle. And so receiving, you are now presently, continually, continually receiving the goal of your faith the full and final salvation of your souls. But you are obtaining that now. Now remember, I've told you a number of times that salvation is actually in three tenses, past, present, and future. When we talk about being saved, we're generally talking about past tense. I have been saved. A better term might be regenerated, or I have been born again. That's past tense. But salvation is both past, present, as well as future. I have been saved. I am being saved. I will be saved. I have been saved. I have been regenerated. I have been justified. I am being saved, 
I am being transformed. I am being sanctified. I am progressing in my Christ-likeness. I am being saved. I'm becoming more like a child of God ought to be. But I've still got a long ways to go. And so salvation is also future. I will be saved. I will be sinless. I will be perfect. I will be glorified. I will live eternally with Christ. I will inherit His glory and share in the inheritance of that which has been given to Christ. Those things are yet in the future, but that's all part of salvation. All of that is coming. I will be saved. Now what hope is doing is receiving, obtaining, might be a better word, obtaining some of the benefits and blessings of future salvation and pulling them down into the present and enjoying them and benefiting by them now. And so we can also say of hope that it results in spiritual growth. Hope is connected to the idea of progressive sanctification. Because we are receiving presently, obtaining more and more of our salvation. We are receiving the end of our faith, the salvation, the full and final salvation of our entire being. But we are receiving that now. We are obtaining more and more of it now. We are obtaining more parts of it, more pieces of it day by day. We are growing in Christ-likeness day by day. And that's all part of our hope, our lively hope. Because of what we know is coming in the future, we are able, by faith, you can't divorce faith from hope, we are able by faith to reach up, as it were, and obtain some of that future salvation and bring it into the present. And what is that? That is growing in Christ-likeness day by day. We are being saved. Because we will be saved, therefore, we are being saved. And to the extent that we focus most upon what we shall be someday, when that becomes precious to us, then we can obtain a a larger measure of it now. And so we are being saved in greater progress now. And that's our hope. Somebody who has a daily, living, ongoing hope like that, it's hard to discourage them. It's hard to defeat them. It's hard for them to get down because of trials when they have a hope like that. I have a hope that is steadfast and sure since Jesus came into my heart. Now all of that is a predicate to joy. Back to... Verse 8, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. You rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Because faith, love, and hope combine to produce joy. Part of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy. And what is this joy? Well, it is, first of all, an exuberant joy. It is, secondly, an inexpressible joy. And it is, thirdly, a heavenly joy. It's an exuberant joy. An exuberant joy. You rejoice with joy inexpressible. It's a great joy, a rejoicing joy. Rejoicing with joy is the idea. It's the same word that was used in verse 6. When he said, in this you greatly rejoice. And there he was talking about rejoicing in what's coming in the future. But here he talks about rejoicing now. Not only rejoicing about what's coming in the future, but rejoicing now in your relationship with Christ, your faith in Christ, your love for Christ, and your communion with Christ that is expressed in your love and your fellowship with Him, and your desire to commune with Him, and the hope which you have. And all of that brings a wonderful joy into your soul, a joy that is, that is heavenly joy, great joy, shouting for joy that cannot be contained. 
We don't experience a lot of that, do we? Sometimes we like to get over on this side of the line and we point our fingers at the folks over on the other side who are too rowdy. <laughs> Look at those Pentecostals. Look at those Charismatics. Look at those, those uh, mountain folks. They just don't have any decorum. They don't have any dignity. They just shout and clap and carry on like like there's uh, like God's not a holy God or something like that. Look, look, what's wrong with them? And they're over on the other side pointing their finger back at us and saying, what's wrong with you guys? Where's the joy inexpressible and full of glory? And we look at those guys and we say, yeah, but they don't have any doctrine. They don't have any theology. They don't have any foundation. They're just all emotion. It doesn't last very long. They can get pumped up in a service and they can go out And within just a few hours, they're right down on the bottom because they have no foundation for what they're doing. And in many cases, that's exactly true. But then the guys over there say, yeah, but you guys never get pumped up at all. You never express any joy. What's the matter with you? If your doctrine's so good, if your foundation's so good, why isn't it expressing itself in joy? And I think we need to realize that we can learn something from one another here. There's no... no prize for having an empty joy that has no doctrinal foundation, but God isn't pleased with a solid doctrinal theological faith that has no joy. You rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, an exuberant joy. An inexpressible joy. Our old King James said unspeakable, and that just simply means you can't speak it. Unspeakable. You can't talk about it. Cannot express it in words. It's above human speech. Like the old mountain preacher said, it's better felt than telt. Well, there is an aspect of our joy that cannot be telt, according to the words of Peter. It can only be felt. It's interesting that Wayne Grudem, in his commentary in 1 Peter, inserted at this point the high value of music, which he says is a wonderful vehicle for expressing fullness of joy. Music, which, of course, has speech as its content, but it carries us beyond mere speech. And I think he's exactly right. If, if speech were the only point of our music, then we wouldn't need the music. We could just speak. But there's another element to it. The the music takes our words and lifts them to a higher plane. A higher plane of what? A higher plane of joy. It, It helps us to express a joy that is, frankly, impossible to express this side of eternity. Exuberant joy, inexpressible joy. And finally, it's a heavenly joy. It tells us that it's full of glory. What does that mean? Infused with the future heavenly glory. Christ is glorified. He he rose from the dead in his glorified body. He's gone back to heaven. He's surrounded by glory. Heaven's a glorious place. The glory of God is there. Glory is there all around. That big word that has so many aspects to it that it's hard to nail down at times. But this joy is infused with a heavenly delight, a heavenly glory. It's a a piece of heaven now. We can enjoy heaven now when we experience this joy inexpressible because it's full of glory. It's full of heavenly glory that has been pulled down from heaven into into the, down to earth. It's been pulled down from our future into our present. It allows us to rejoice and enjoy what we are going to feel and rejoice to the fullness when we get to heaven. But we can enjoy that now. We ought to be enjoying that now. We ought to be rejoicing now in some measure like we're going to rejoice when we are in heaven and there's no more sin and no more sorrow and no more pain and no more dying and no more anything that, that is not entirely Christ-like. So let me try to apply my text. 
What reduces our joy? Well, the only way I know to answer that is, first of all, to answer the question, what produces joy? And we've seen it here. Faith, love, and hope produces joy. Faith that continually feeds upon the promises of God. Love that eagerly fulfills Christ's revealed will. Hope that brings the joys of future blessings into present experience. That kind of faith, love, and hope will produce joy. What attacks our joy? What attacks our joy is neglect of the things that produce it. When our faith is not continually feeding upon the promises of God. When our love is not eagerly fulfilling Christ's revealed will. When our hope is not dwelling upon the future and upon the blessings that are promised to us and pulling them into our present experience, then our hearts are not filled with much joy. So what should we do? Four things. Number one, strengthen faith by feeding it daily upon God's word. Strengthen your faith by feeding daily upon God's word. That will certainly involve faithful attendance at a Bible-preaching church. And beyond that, faithful reading of God's word. Do you have a daily Bible reading schedule? Are you doing something to read God's word on a systematic daily basis? If you're not, then you are depriving yourself of one of the primary ingredients that will bring true heavenly joy. There is a counterfeit. There's a earthly, sensual, emotional kind of joy that can be jacked up by, by uh, certain kinds of music and all kinds of emotional things that really isn't this joy inexpressible and full of glory at all. It's a, it's a cheap counterfeit of it. It may appear to be that to the, to the eyes of some, but it's not the real thing at all because it's not produced by faith, hope, and, and love. It, it doesn't come from within. It's stirred up from external things. We don't want that. We don't want that kind of counterfeit. But if you want the real thing, you're going to have to feed regularly upon the Word of God. Number two, strengthen your love by forsaking everything that competes with Christ. You strengthen your faith by feeding upon the Word of God. You strengthen your love by forsaking everything that competes with Christ. Removing everything out of your life that you believe displeases Him and continually offer to Him your full obedience and wholehearted devotion. When you know that you are not giving Christ wholehearted obedience, full obedience and wholehearted devotion, then you know that you aren't pleasing Him. You're trying to hold on to the world with one hand and hold on to Christ with the other. You're trying to serve mammon as well as God. You're trying to have just enough of Christ to get you to heaven, but not really loving Him enough to devote your life to Him. So strengthen your love by forsaking everything that competes with Christ. Number three, meditate upon the glories of heaven. We don't do that much. Some Christians never do that, I don't suppose. We're so consumed with the now and now. I want something practical that will help me live a better life now, that will make me more successful now, that will make my marriage happy now, that will make my, my job uh, more successful now, that will make me more prosperous now, that will make me more successful now. The fact of the matter is, if you would become more heavenly minded, you would be more, more successful now. But the reason you're not more successful is because you aren't seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and letting all these other things be added unto you. You're seeking all these other things and asking God to put his blessing upon them. And that's your first priority and your first goal. So number three, meditate upon the glories of heaven. And number four, fill your life with praise. Fill your life with praise, with singing, with God-exalting music. That will help you. That will help you. You see, most Christians believe that it's difficult circumstances that have stolen your joy. But that's a false delusion. These Christians had circumstances more difficult than any of ours. What is it that has stolen your joy? I can give it to you in one three-letter word. 
You won't like it, but I'm going to do it anyway. One three-letter word. S-I-N. Sin. Sins of omission. Sins of commission. Failure to do what you know you ought to do. And do, as well as doing those things which you know you ought not. That's all wrapped up in faith and love and hope. And I can't think of a better time than the first Sunday of 2008 to lay before the Lord your life, your soul, your aspirations, your desires, and say, Lord, they're all yours. I give them all to you. I want my life to be one of wholehearted devotion unto you, O Lord. Help me with that, whatever it takes. Be a wonderful prayer. May God help us. Shall we pray? O Lord, as we begin this new year, we again thank you for bringing us through the last one. And O Lord, we see your blessing, your goodness, your grace. And we see too much of our failure, our weakness, our sin. O Lord, help us to yield to you our dreams, our desires, our aspirations, our visions, our goals. May we yield them all to you and let you give them back to us as you want them to be. Lord, may we yield to you our amusements, our possessions, our habits of speech. Lord, all those things that in our life are not fully and completely pleasing to you, Lord, we give them all to you, and we ask you to give them back to us in that sanctified form that will bring honor and glory to Christ. And Lord, help us to have more joy, inexpressible and full of glory, to the honor and praise of our Savior. Amen.